All right, friends, at this time in the service, I'd like to invite you yet again to just take a deep breath and avail yourself to the gospel of Jesus Christ as is revealed to us in the scriptures. Crossroads, we believe that the, uh, the Bible is Christocentric, which is a fancy word for centered around the Christ. Anywhere that we're reading it and studying it, we're always trying to see how does this reveal Christ to us. So as a community, we've been studying a book of the Bible called Daniel. If you're not familiar where this is, it's uh, right after Jeremiah, Lamentation, Ezekiel, and Daniel. If you're flipping through, why don't you find a Bible and turn to Daniel chapter 2, if you have a sec. While you're turning there, I just want to remind you, if you're new to this town, there's something very important happening starting this coming Wednesday. The world's largest art competition resides in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Who's excited about this? Um, if you... You know, aren't aware of this anywhere within a radius of a mile downtown. It can host art for a large, progressive art experience, you know, where you go on and on to different places to see kind of what's happening. And one of the things in Crossroads' mission statement is that we are here to renew the city. You can't renew the city unless you're actively involved and participating in what's going on in the city. So I just want to encourage you. Go nuts. Be a part of Art Prize. Go vote for something. See what artists are creating and what they're critiquing, what they're showing us. The role of the artist is very important to me. They're kind of like the border patrol of our culture. You know, they're, they're on the fringe, not quite in, not quite out, looking and seeing what's going on and shaping things, showing us stuff about ourselves that, you know, we might not have seen, but we always saw. Looking out into, you know, dangerous place and, protecting us from stuff that's coming in. I think it's a very valuable thing for us to celebrate. Crossroads is also, this building here is also a venue. So you might be seeing different pieces of art hanging and you know, out in the lobby and upstairs by the elevator and stuff. And that is here for you to just enjoy. Artists are featured here. Some are Christian, some are not Christian. Some are from different backgrounds and different worldviews. And so I just encourage you to do what you would do with this art what you would do with all the art in this town. Think deep thoughts. Feel deep feelings. Write it down. Talk to somebody next to you. Start a conversation. Take it as far as you'd like to take it. That's all I wanted to say about that. I'm the only person that has no Bible. I'm going to find one. Okay, so uh, Daniel chapter 2. By way of introduction, let me just remind you a little bit of the momentum started last Sunday where Rod kind of talked about some several themes uh, from Daniel chapter 1. One being the Babylonian exile. It's very important uh, in the history of the Jews. This is a very important season. There's lots of archaeology and history and information about this outside of the Bible and in the Bible itself. Exile. What's going on with that? He brought the theme of exile and with the lens of identity. I think that's very profound. Because no better is a place for you to actually see your identity than in a place that's different from your regular context and culture. When you're outside of your comfort zone, that's when you start to actually see what's really under the hood. When you get a new job, you start to go to a new place. You get, to, you get challenged. Am I going to stand for the things that I always have stood for? Or am I standing on a board that in the, <laughs> that's kind of flimsy right now, you know? And that's a little weaker than I thought it was. That could be a scary thing. You go to college for the first year. You start to get challenged by things you might never have been challenged for before that were assumptions and things that you just thought. That was really sturdy. You might have found it's not that sturdy. I'm not as strong as I thought I was. You also might find that very confirming thing when you are challenged by something and you did stand for something you believed in. Going into a place that's different and unfamiliar can challenge you, can confirm things, and I think it's a good thing. Babylon is a confusing place to be. The spirit of Babylon and the tenor kind of continues into our culture and over the, you know, over the centuries. There's a lot of confusion out there when you start to build an identity. Not on the word of God. Mark my words, if you start to build your identity outside of God's way and plan, you're going to get nothing but confusion. Walk into Babylon, what do they do? They change your name. 
Target rich environment for identity crisis is when a name, when something gets a different name. Who am I? I was in my hometown a couple months ago uh, for a family reunion. This is a Burger King. It's an old Burger King. I'm driving by, and they have taken a, a tarp and wrapped it around the sign, kind of like Crossroads used to do back at Walker Charter with the, uh, this is no longer a school, it's a church. Uh, and it said on the sign, Peppers. I'm like, what's a Peppers? We stop it, it's a Mexican restaurant now. I'm like, this is Burger King. There's an identity shifty thing happening here, you know, when a name changes. A name is a very important thing. Babylon will do that to you, though. Babylon will do that, and it'll do the other side of the coin. Take something, keep the name, change the definition. That'll send you into a very, very unfamiliar place, and we see that all the time. Words like tolerance, same word. Starting to change the definition. Family, love, marriage. We're building our identities and definitions, not on the word of God, not on God's way. It's going to be a very confusing path. We got to follow Daniel. He and his friends, we saw last week, chose not to eat a certain food. Of course, we don't have necessarily the same you know, ritual purity or the same uh, rules about common or unclean food, unless you're like a diehard Trader Joe's fan or <laughs> you shop at King Ma's or something. Uh, but, you know, unless you believe that McDonald's is a defiling thing, right? Um, we don't really get it. But you know what? We do know that there are things that defile us. What I love about Daniel is he takes a stand. He says, I will not defile myself from this. And he starts to show us a train of thought, and it's this, that he is not just surviving Babylon. And we are not called to just merely survive, you know, just passing through. We are here to do something much more profound than that. Daniel taking a stand in Babylon for what he believes in. It's not him just putting his head down and just waiting for this to be over. It's him making a statement. I want to be a lighthouse while my countrymen are out lost at sea in a very unfamiliar territory, and I want to preach to them with my life, stay the course. You can do it. We need Daniels. It's a dark, stormy world out there to, to be lighthouses and, set, and, and help us to find direction. Daniel doesn't only not survive, you know, not only is he not just a survival mentality. Not only is he a lighthouse for his countrymen. This is what I want to talk to you about this evening. Pushing a little farther. Daniel is also a light to Babylon. He's also somebody who's bringing peace and rest to a different country, a different people who believe a different God. Of course, it would be tempting to just sort of stay in, in box number two, where you're a light, you're trying to, you know, circle up your tribe and, and you know, try as hard as you can to continue on your traditions and your uh, in identity. But what kind of God could lead a people in national crisis to be so solid that they actually help someone else in the midst of their crisis as well? find that to be very profound. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I'm already preaching. I haven't even <laughs> read anything yet. Sorry. Uh, in the wrong chapter. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. If you're willing to stand with me for the reading, please stand at your own risk. Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1 reads as follows. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled. He couldn't sleep. So he summoned the magician, enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. They came and stood before the king, and he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. So the Chaldean answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, 
This is what I firmly decided. If you do not tell me my dream, what my dream was, and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your house turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you'll receive from me gifts and rewards and honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it. Once more they replied, let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you're trying to gain time because you have realized that this is what I have firmly decided. If you don't tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You've conspired to, do mis to, to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation would change. So then, tell me the dream, and I'll know that you can interpret it for me. Uh, the Chaldean answered the king, There is no one on earth who can do what the king asks. So no king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing from any magician, any enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death. Men were sent to look for Daniel and his friend to put them to death. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. The king, well, he asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Ariak then explained the matter to Daniel. At, at this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. And Daniel returned to the house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, a mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And then he prayed to the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and rulers and brings them down. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, God of my ancestor, for you have given me power and wisdom and have made known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said, Don't execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Ariok took Daniel to the king and said, I have found a man among the exiles of Judah who could tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain the king the mystery that he has asked you. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. Your majesty was laying there. Your mind turned to things to come, and a revealer of mysteries showed you what's going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation, and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a statue. It was enormous and dazzling and awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet were partly iron and partly baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron and the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept, away, swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain that filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we will interpret it. Your majesty, you're the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power, might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind. And all the beasts of the fields and the birds of the sky, wherever they live, he has made you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, the next kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third, one of bronze, and it will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. Iron breaks and smashes everything. 
And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all others. Just as you saw, the feet and toes were partly baked clay and partly of iron. So this will be a divided kingdom. It will have some strength of iron in it, even as you saw from iron mixed with clay. But the toes are partly iron and clay. So this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. Just as you saw iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture. And they will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will be left to other people. It will crush all of those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands. A rock that broke iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then the king fell on his face before Daniel and paid honor and ordered that an offering of incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. The king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all the wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. King Nebuchadnezzar made it... I'm just joking. (laughs) These are the words of God. You may have a seat or stand. It's up to you. A very compelling story. Good God, what kind of God could take a nation in crisis and use them to bring some sort of peace and and healing and restoration to another person or people in crisis? Some God that we serve. I want to talk about this from an angle of bringing rest to Babylon. Daniel bringing rest. Why do I use the word rest? I use that intentionally. Not because there's... All that rest in this passage, actually. The king's not sleeping. You know, the wise men, they're under the gun. Daniel's not sleeping. He's getting visions in the night. Uh, Not because they're resting, but because I think there's a big theme that plays into exile that um, might be something that's really compelling to this story. Obviously, you probably know one of the Hebrew words for rest, Shabbat, cease, to stop, to rest. It reminds you kind of the progression of that idea in the beginning. God set up sacred time and space for people to stop, to cease, to rest. It's almost as if God decided to write right into the fabric of the rhythm of life moments for people to look at the tyranny of time and say, I'm not your slave. And stop. It's almost like God is saying, I want you to look at time, this thing that's constantly ticking in the back of your mind, constantly running out and saying, I'm not a machine. I'm free. I can rest. As you see the progression of this start to grow, you can read in places like Leviticus 25, God pushes it further and says, not just a day a week or a time a week or, or something like that. I want you to go a full year, every seven years. I want you to look at your uh, land, look at your trees, look at the, the place that I've given you to live. And I want you to just say, almost, it's almost like, I want you to just say, you're not my slave. You're free. I want you to rest. You're welcome to grab fruit off the land or things that happen naturally, but allow it to just sort of rest and be free. He then says even farther than that, there's a year of jubilee. Fifty years, you know, go by, and every 50th year, I want you to look at your brother, look at your friends, look at your neighbor, the people that owe you things, and look at it and just say, I'm going to release you. You're free. I am not Pharaoh to you. You are not a slave to me. I want to communicate that to you in some way that's actual, tangible, and valuable. I want to relieve a burden off of your shoulders. This is the rhythm that God set up to be a part of the DNA of his people. God wants his people to be agents of Sabbath, rest, and freedom in culture. and Let that start to move out into all nations around them. How many years was Israel in exile? 
70 years. Why 70? Let's ask the Bible. No place. You can read Jeremiah. You can read Ezekiel. They all talk about this, but I'd like to read you a verse. It's very clear. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. Verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rest. All the time of desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. This doesn't come from nowhere. If you uh, looked back to Leviticus 26, it's, it's a very clear consequence. God means what he's talking about. Uh, he means business when he's talking about this. Leviticus 26, 33. In consequence to not following the year of Jubilee or the Sabbath years, I will draw you out and scatter you among the nations. I will draw out my sword and pursue you. Your land will be laid waste. Your cities will be in ruin. And the land will there enjoy its Sabbath years. All the time the land lays desolate. The land will rest. All the time it lays desolate, it will rest as it did not have rest when you lived in it. It's not just an idle threat. As I read, I kind of read those backwards, but, you know, in Second Chronicles, this is kind of what happened. For hundreds of years, they didn't do it. Now, I think it would be a mistake for you to conclude that God is just really petty. And he could just keep track of who's naughty and who's nice and how many Sabbath years and stuff were taken. And, and now it's time to, you know, be reckoned. I think it would also be a, a mistake, personally, if you were to interpret this as God being just really out of control. That this was way too harsh for him to take a whole nation to exile to, for this time. I think another perspective is, is very compelling. What if God was actually just this serious about people knowing that they're free to rest, about people knowing that they're not slaves, about people communicating that they're not Pharaoh and taskmasters to, uh, to each other? What if we found a God somewhere that said, I'm that serious about you communicating to each other this truth, you're free. You're free to rest. And in one way or another, that is going to be communicated to you and to the people that are around you. You gotta ask yourself, were they free and then from their freedom they became prisoners in exile? Or were they free in the first place? I mean, if you read first and second Kings or first and second Chronicles, they're not free. Yeah, they're living in their land, but they are, they're shackled to idolatry and to wickedness and to pagan gods under every spreading tree. They didn't go from free to prisoner. Exile almost has into it some sort of mirror image of hope. They went from free producing uh, bondage to being a prisoner and hopefully finally being who they were meant to be. Would they, in, in, as a captive, bring freedom and bring rest to Babylon? This, this is underneath, I think, the story that I just read. How does Daniel, how does Daniel seek peace and the betterment of a city that he's a captive of? Daniel is stepping into being the person that he's, that he's meant to be. And he's showing us. An example of who God's people could be. There's really two stories in this, um, in this chapter. Let me think about both of them. First story in this chapter that I see is of underrated people group there called the wise men. I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, the wise men of Babylon or not, but I did grow up with a flannel graph, sword drills, 
cartoons. You know, and you can only do so much with that, and so, you know, nobody's in trouble. But I do have a picture, and it's just a very, you know, Snape. You know, it's a, it's a very, like, you know, very slimy type of people. It's like five or six Jafar, you know, really bad people. There's nothing, there's nothing good about them. They're just bad people. Don't even think about them. They're just there to be the villain in this story, you know? And, and I wonder if that's consistent with the text, and I wonder if we actually thought a little bit more about them, if that would uh, bring to light what's going on in Daniel's life and how he's interacting with them can make a little more sense. Don't imagine Daniel as sitting in a prison cell. Imagine Daniel as a part of the academies, a part of the academies of Babylon, Lots and lots of information that you can research about the Neo-Babylonian Empire. If you just search Nebuchadnezzar II, that will start to get you into this um, area of research. And this uh, empire had just a big melting pot of ideas and religions and concepts and science and teachings. And they set up all kinds of academies for people to become experts and to learn. The intelligentsia of Babylon is resting upon these people called wise men. Daniel is, is studying alongside of this. He's in a program to become someone in this culture. What are they studying? Well, I can break it down into, you know, four categories for your mind's comprehension. The first one is um, magic. This is why in the spectrum of these academies, I put something like Harvard on this side and Hogwarts on this side. Because they were doing things that were involving uh, sorcery and magic. And don't think Penn and Teller, card tricks, something fun. Think dark arts, black magic, sorcery, witchcraft, people who are fascinated with supernatural realm and trying to manipulate things. Um, you have magicians. The second thing, you have astronomers. They're fascinated with the stars. There's tons of things that you can see, uh, it, you know, through research uh, that they have written about the stars. One of the things that I noticed that I found very interesting was they're taking such meticulous records of the stars that they, in the time, uh, you know, calculated, this has been 2,500 years ago, they calculated the uh, year based on the stars. And you know what they came up with? The year, 365 days, six hours, 15 minutes. I don't know how long a year is supposed to be, but I looked it up, and it seems that we've, we've concluded that it's 300, it's only 25 minutes off. That's what I'm trying to say. They, by looking at the stars, where it's only 25 minutes, I can't look at the stars and tell you anything. I'm borderline faking seeing a dipper. I don't even know what a dipper is. I don't use that word. Except for french fries. I call it a ladle. Big ladle, little ladle. I don't see it. It's remarkable. They're, they're into the stars. And they're also another category. Astronomer, magician, and then priest. Occultic priest. Astronomy turns into astrology. They start to create, uh, you know, the religions and uh, in their society, this was a very big deal. So they're using the stars. They're using um, uh, wood that they would scatter on the ground to start to deduce the future. Or my personal favorite, they would actually take the liver of a lamb to, to read this to tell the future. Not really sure if we thought of that one, but I'm thinking it's somebody who just really likes shawarma, and they're just trying to find excuses to get more lamb. Uh, but you never know with that kind of thing. Telling the future. Uh, last on the, on the list of four would be something very obvious. There's actually the namesake of this group. They're sages. They're wise men. <laughs> I don't know how I could have overlooked that, but they have a people uh, group called the, the wise men. They're a part of this that they, they are well-versed in the complexities of life, and they would advise the king on matters of war and politics. These are the... Uh, the elite of the elite. And think about what's consistent with this text. Nebuchadnezzar, he is the most resourced person in the world. And he's got a problem. And he brings into the situation room who? 
There's like five people from some backwoods cult thing that like isn't, isn't valuable at all. Or he brings the best and brightest of Babylon in to help him with his crisis. These are the people that Daniel is brushing shoulders with. These are the people that Daniel is dealing with. And that, I, I belabor the point simply too because I think we dehumanize and just detach the wise men in this whole process and have no feelings about them. But what if we were to say, these are the, the cabinet of, of the White House. I mean, these are the big brains of, of Harvard and, and, and of Oxford. And these are the people that are helping our culture and society stick together and, and shape the things that we're doing as a country. This is a very important people group to this country. So how does Daniel bring rest to them? Well, I have been accused of making a mountain out of a molehill before, and so I just want to prepare you. Uh, If you think that I'm stretching this, it might be a stretch. But I don't think so. (laughs) Daniel saves these guys' life. He saves the lives of all these people. And my point is, I don't think he had to. Do you see the progression of how this kind of unfolds? When the word comes to Daniel that all the wise men are going to, uh, you know, be executed, he says, uh, okay, I'm going to go tell my friends, and they're going to pray, and then the sentence reads, that they would not be executed with the wise men of Babylon. But then as things progress, it seems like it's less about saving his own skin. He goes through different, uh, he, goes, he, he goes out of his way to actually sound like he's a part of the team. After he prays, you know, what does he say to Ariok? Tell him, don't execute the wise men. He didn't have to say that. He could have said, so you know, I got an answer. I'm the only one. Me and my friends are cool, but you know, I mean, I'm not trying to make that big of a wave. He could have said a lot of things. He's, he's putting his foot down for the wise men. He goes into the throne room of the king. Just imagine Teenager, a young man standing before the king, lions on a chain on either side, just scared out of his mind. He kind of agrees with the wise men. Can you interpret the dream? He says, nobody can. None of the wise men can. He could have said, yes. (laughs) That's the first answer. He could have said, yes, I can. I have dreams interpretation. None of your guys do. None of your religious leaders do, but I do. I want to tell you about my God, Yahweh. I mean, I know Elijah would have done that. We know he would have done that. He doesn't even say the name Yahweh. And I'm just asking why. And I wonder, is Daniel rising above and finding a way to be loving rather than just merely being right. Is Daniel using some tact, some wisdom, some diplomacy here, because he knows that he has in his control the fate of tons of families in Babylon? I mean, wouldn't it be just consistent with his character to find a way of saying it that didn't throw somebody under the bus? He even goes out of his way after he starts interpreting. He's just so you know, I'm, this is only revealed to me, not because I'm smarter than any other person alive in this world, but it's just so that, God, you know, the God of heaven, is, he wants to tell this to you. And I find this compelling because if God wants his people to be agents of rest, Agents of Sabbath, people that bring Sabbath and freedom and relief of burden to others in this world. We got to start finding a way to be more diplomatic with how we uh, bring our opinions into the game. With maybe we even know that we're right. Like he knows that he's right, but is there a way to be right and loving at the same time? Is there a way to disagree with? The magi, the people who believe in a different God, they have a different religion, they have a different opinion. And is there a way to look out for them somehow, advocate for them a little bit more than just what's uh, demanded of you? Wouldn't have been easy for him to kick them while they're down. They had a public shame that day. 
How many people, even on our own team in Christianity, get removed from their office or get in some sort of scandal or some public shame? And how easy is it to kick them while they're down and just say, I'm not like that person and this is why they're wrong? What if we became a people who tried to somehow, like Daniel, stick to the truth? He says what he believes, but also find a way of saying things that, that bring people up with us as well rather than push them down. What if we brought our egos out of, we took our egos out of it and we started to find ways to still be true to what we believe, but also find a way to, to relieve burdens from other people when, when they're clearly in the wrong? Reminds me a lot of teaching of Jesus when he says, love your enemies. If this isn't a way to start thinking about loving your enemies, I don't know what is. To see the Magi, as people who left their family that morning, who kissed their wives goodbye, didn't know they were going to be sentenced to death, and to give them a second chance, to, or at least try to articulate it in a way that doesn't, doesn't just mean that they're going to be executed. If you imagine the rest and the joy that happened in those families when they opened up the door that night to come home, it probably spread like wildfire. He didn't wait for them to get catechized. He didn't wait for them to agree with him about theology or God. He, he simply is trying to relieve, to bring rest, and to bring peace to Babylon. You know that gal that gets thrown in front of Jesus. Of course she got caught committing adultery and doing something she shouldn't have been doing. Jesus could have done, you know, what's the easy way. You got what was coming to you. How many times does that come up in your heart? How many times do I say that justifiably? Ah, you got what was coming to him. That might be right. But there's a way to not only be right and be loving. And he found a way to give her a second chance and to raise her up without agreeing with her, without risking that kind of, uh, you know, just so you know, I don't agree with you. He grabbed her by the hand. He silenced the accusations and he said, you bear the image of God. You're somebody that I can love. And I'll give you a second chance. Go and sin no more. You know what that reminds me of? While we were yet sinners... He died for us. While we were yet in the same category as the Magi or the, the wise man in a different religion, he says, I could die for you. I want to be like that. So Daniel tries. He finds a way to defuse the situation and the wise men are not killed. End of story. Story number two. Daniel is interacting with the king. How does Daniel bring rest to the king? How does this work? Well, remember, the king, he is in a, he's in a great crisis. You can tell that he's in a crisis because he's trying to kill all these people for nothing almost. I mean, and that's not nothing. This is an ancient civilization which, I'm sure that you know, they don't have a big distinction between the physical, you know, and the, and, and the divine. Everything's connected. More superstitious than baseball players. I mean, they are like, everything has to do with a god. Everything has to do with your livelihood. Everything has to do with appeasing the gods, okay? So your economical, you know, situations, your guilds, your whole group are, are all dealing with the religion to some level or another. And so if, if Nebuchadnezzar were to think about this, to snap his fingers and kill all the wise men and the religious people of this city, they're... they're Community might start, the glue that's stuck together will start to unravel There's their whole co community. And I, as I said, it's not just 10 people. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. When people are making decisions like this, they're clearly in crisis mode. They're clearly not thinking long term. What's Nebuchadnezzar got in his mind? Sorry, I've been talking a lot. My jaw is a little tired. Anybody else want to talk for a while? No. Uh, he sees a metal statue, a metal, metal statue. So that just popped into my mind. My, my grandpa died 20-some years ago. I still remember sitting in church with him. We had pews, of course, back then. And 
I would just color the whole time, draw things. And my brothers and I would always try and make these uh, superheroes up. So we were big into cartoons and stuff. And uh, I made one that I called the Metal Man. <laughs> so I asked my grandpa, I couldn't spell. I said, right in the top of this, Metal Man. And then I showed my brothers, and they're like, why did you make a superhero called Mental Man? And <laughs> I was, it's not Mental Man. And so I go to my grandpa, he's like, I thought you said Mental Man. Uh, so... Didn't, my brothers didn't need any more <laughs> excuses, nicknames for me. Um, the, uh, the metal man, he's, he sees a statue. Let me remind you of this. It's a head of gold, chest of silver, bronze, iron, partly iron and clay feet. He then sees a boulder come out of nowhere and smash the statue. The boulder grows to become a mountain that dominates the horizon line for everybody. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar, you know, you put yourself in his shoes if you were to take a stab on interpreting this dream without any help on your own, there's a 50% chance that you're not the boulder. <laughs> so that could cause some feelings of tension and alarm. I, I, you know, are you right? If he's feeling like this is actually uh, something that's significant, this vision that he's got is something that's true. He's feeling something that's different than just a, a calamity is coming uh, eventually in my life or something. It's not an if but a win that's menacing to him. This is going to happen. I just, is it going to happen today? When is this going to happen? I heard this on the news, not to be insensitive. I mean, I, recently, I've heard this on the news in the last couple of weeks with the hurricanes coming. I've heard the phrase, it's not if, it's when. Nebuchadnezzar standing on the, the beach, seeing the storm. He's making decisions that just reflect someone in utter crisis. The question for all of us is, when you're in the crisis, who do you go to? What do you, what do you really need? Because what I want to find out is how did Nebuchadnezzar go from on top of his throne of worry to the floor and worship? Of course, we, we all have crises that come up. Of course, we all have phone calls from the doc or from, you know, family members who are, who are struggling where we start to figure out this is, this is a major life crisis. Of course, we start to see how our families and marriages and things are starting to become in, in, in negative space. But where are you going to go? To the voices of the, the wise men of our time? I mean, we've got voices We've got gurus. We've got people who try and tell us what to do, how to feel, and what to think in moments of crisis. But their voices are silenced in those moments. Because Nebuchadnezzar doesn't need an answer. He doesn't need an answer from some wise men. Nebuchadnezzar and us need the living God. And the first place and the best place to go when you're in a crisis is to your knees. And to plead for mercy. Exactly what Daniel does. He prays. And I don't know where you're at right now with prayer. But prayer to me is one of the most important things in my reality. One of the most intimate things that anyone could ever experience. Is to know that my innermost thoughts, my innermost being is somehow connected to the divine. There is somehow God is hearing the groans. Romans 8, he hears the groans of, of, with words that cannot be expressed. And somehow he's translating that and figuring that out. I believe in prayer. And I believe that we can be a people of prayer that's far beyond what we're doing now. We can, still, we can take this as far as we want to take this. We don't need to be the people that are just providing answers. We need to be the people that are providing a connection between the God of verse 21, for example. The God not of just giving answers, but the God who is the source of the answers. The God of wisdom. The God who gives knowledge to the learned. We don't need a, a new amount of time or a plan. We need the God who holds time in his hands, who changes the seasons. I need to know about what the next leader, the next king is going to be. I want to know the God that sets up the leaders and the kings. Because if your problem is this big and your God is this big, 
That's when you start to feel the overwhelming feel of worry like Nebuchadnezzar. But if you start to see the God that Daniel knows, you can say to the mountain, be thrown into the heart of the sea. Because our God, just for your information, does not need us to look at the stars to figure out what he wants. He doesn't need us to conjure up some sort of secret uh, sorcery in order to get his affection. He doesn't need us to make a bunch of sacrifices to twist his arm into listening to us. Our God, from the beginning of the book to the end, says, I'm with you. I'm listening. I can hear you. I want you to just call me. I am not I will be when, when you make me happy. Or not I was back here at this season in life. I am with you right now. Ask me anything. I am near to the brokenhearted. I am, I am so in love with you. You don't have to remember the teaching of Jesus. You don't have to get all these words in order to, to get him to hear you. He knows what you need. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your justice, your rule, your, you, you, come in our earth as it is in heaven right now. I know that people sometimes say to me, you know, prayer is a cop-out. We really need boots on the ground. We really need relief, you know, put into mobilization. But I never grew up making a distinction between the two. It's chicken or the egg. Which came first? Someone on their knees praying for mercy or somebody mobilized to go actually give the mercy. I believe that all good things and all acts of kindness and mercy come from our Father of heavenly lights. He does not change like shifting shadows. And he is constantly listening to our prayers. And if you're in a moment like Nebuchadnezzar, don't settle for answers and don't settle for the people that we put up on pedestals. Go straight to God. Because if you're in a moment of Christ, you might not get the answer that you're looking for. Nebuchadnezzar didn't. You get that great of an answer. <laughs> you're the head of gold. And this is empires that are going to follow you. Okay? <laughs> that didn't matter. The answer doesn't matter. Because God never is trying to just give us answers and lay out how life is going to be. God says, look at the stars and feel the peace that I want to give you. And when you know the sovereign God, you will start to get the peace that passes all understanding. It's not about understanding. He brings rest by praying for his enemy. This reminds me a lot of something that Jesus said once. Pray for your enemies. Pray for them unconditionally, like God gives the Son unconditionally to everybody. Reminds me of Jesus nailed to the cross, surrounded by people who hate him, and he couldn't help it. He just started praying, forgive him, forgive him. When's the last time you prayed for somebody that you felt like was against you? You felt like was on a different team? Daniel is standing before his captor, and he is seeking to bring him rest and bring him peace. What a guy. So that's the uh, second story that I see in there. The, um, the only other thing, if I get the musicians back in the house, is um, where to take that statue. How far do you take it? How do you interpret that? There's a lot of different interpretations of the statue beyond what Daniel said. Um, but I think I... I, but I like the one about the empires to follow Babylon. So if you take the statue and you set it on its side, it kind of becomes a timeline, right? Here's how, here's how it plays out. You've got the Babylonian king, the golden head, the empire. What's the next one? Cyrus in the Persian, right? So that's the, the, the silver. Continuing on to the uh, abdomen of bronze. Alexander the Great, the Greek empire. Continuing on to the iron. Rome. And right about that time, this is just really compelling to me. Right about that time, some magi from the east are looking at the stars and stuff starts happening over Israel. And they come. And what do they find? A baby born of a virgin. Some might say a man, a stone, not hewn with human hands. It begins to grow and proclaim a kingdom that's not of this world 
kingdom that's not like the other kingdoms built on the backs of slaves, built on the back, built in the need of power. A kingdom that was built on self-sacrificial love, most clearly seen in Christ crucified. Self-sacrificial love for Nebuchadnezzar's and people like me who need to be set free and given a rest. prayer for you is that that kingdom that Jesus proclaimed will continue to grow and grow in your life till it becomes the mountain that they, that they envision that dominates our horizon line. My prayer is that you take the kingdom into your city and bring peace and rest to Babylon, the people that are in your sphere of influence. And we can take a hint from Daniel. It's not about the kingdom that we live in. It's about the kingdom that we live for. Jesus invites us. Not to build the mountain for him, but to build it with him. Pick up your cross with him and follow him in this. The kingdom of God's advancing, my friends. Why don't we just pray for a moment and think about it? Sometimes, Father in heaven, I could get all kinds of backwards thoughts and jumbled around mess. And I just pray that you speak to my brothers and sisters about bringing. Bring the rest that you provide, the perpetual Sabbath rest and the peace that you want to give to all of us. Bring that to their families, their workplaces, their schools. That they start to be a people who are known to be the most restful and, and peace-giving people around. Does anybody who is holding forgiveness back, we just let it go and we start to give forgiveness as, as quickly as you give. Pray for any of us who are looking at somebody who have a different religion or a different kind of culture or worldview. Just pray that you give us new eyes and start to see people with your image. Start to see people who you love also and give us wisdom and tact to be able to be diplomatic and yet true to what we believe as well. Anybody who just is getting a little jaded on the idea of prayer or are seeing you as very small in light of big, mountainous, impossible things, pray that you would reveal yourself as the God who changes times and seasons and has everything in his hand. Inspire us to be a people who pray for our enemies. Jesus, we just are so proud of you, our champion. The stone that did away with all the empires and kingdoms of this world, the, the system, you subverted the whole thing and turned it upside down to give us something that uh, we can live for out of love. We thank you for that. And we say collectively, come, King Jesus, come. Amen. Tumultuous time. We don't need visions in the night to look ahead and be scared like Nebuchadnezzar was. So if you're in a place like that, or even in a moment, moment of crisis of your own, I just want to pray the prayer, the, the blessing of the Lord over you. I want you to listen to it. The Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will bless you and keep you. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you and look upon you with favor. The Lord will make his face to shine upon you and bring you his peace. That's what we really need. The peace of God. Thank you, Lord. We receive your blessing. Amen. Have a great week, everyone. My hands are all sticky. Oh. <laughs>